Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This is the start of our GI month. We had some great talks today on esophageal food impaction and pediatric appendicitis, as well as a journal update on an article on central line placement in the New England Journal of Medicine that garnered a lot of attention in the foam world. Let's start with the esophageal food boluses. This is relatively uncommon, but we definitely see them frequently enough that we should be comfortable with the acute management in the ED. Dee Coneybear, one of our PGY3 residents, touched on two big questions. Number one, what is the role of glucagon in food impaction? And number two, when should we push for our endoscopist to come for emergent food bolus removal? The first issue we touched on was use of glucagon. I think we've all used this drug in food boluses, and we've had some pretty mixed success with it. Although glucagon is a staple in management, there's little evidence to back it up. In fact, there are a couple of small prospective studies, a number of retrospective studies, and just a single RCT on the topic. That single RCT was pretty small, only about 24 patients, and we'll drop a reference to it in the show notes. In this study, they gave glucagon and diazepam versus placebo and found no difference in need for endoscopy. Even though our GI docs often ask us to do it, the GI recs clearly state that glucagon use should not delay endoscopy. Additionally, D points out that lots of these patients have structural abnormalities, up to 90% in some retrospective studies, causing them obstruction and not simply spasm. And so these patients are not going to be amenable to glucagon, and the drug can actually be dangerous. So the best lit says no utility to glucagon and possible harm. What about endoscopy? If the patient is drooling or not tolerating their saliva, they need an emergent endoscopy done because they've got a complete obstruction. So if they can't swallow their saliva, mobilize your GI doc and give the patient a Yankow or suction catheter in the meantime. If the patient isn't to that level of obstruction, they can be observed for up to 24 hours without getting endoscopy as spontaneous passage is pretty common. If they have spontaneous passage, they're still going to need a scope down the line, but it no longer needs to be emergently done. We shouldn't allow the obstruction to persist past 24 hours. After 24 hours, the chance of esophageal ulceration goes up. Bottom line, glucagon appears to be an antiquated drug with no evidence to defend its use, and there's at least a theoretical harm of vomiting against a complete obstruction causing a perforation. Endoscopy should be emergently performed in a complete obstruction marked by inability to swallow your saliva and urgently in all others, but definitely within 24 hours. Our next talk was on pediatric appendicitis from Alicia Skelton, one of our PGY2 residents. Appy is the fifth most common cause of abdominal pain in kids and the most common surgical emergency. What are the other top five causes of abdominal pain? Gastroenteritis, respiratory tract infections like strep, UTI, and constipation. Peds Appy can be tough to diagnose and is often missed the first time around as they don't present with classic symptoms. It's also the number one cause of malpractice suits against peds EM providers, so we want to be keen on finding the diagnosis. There are some quick things you can do to get a sense of how sick the kid is. Have them press on their own belly where it hurts if they're old enough to follow your instructions and see what their response is. You can also have them jump up and down. If they can jump up and down without significant discomfort, it's unlikely that they're peritoneal. From your physical exam, you can move on to labs and use the pediatric appendicitis score to help with further risk assessment. We'll drop a table with that score in the show notes, as well as place a link to the relevant article. The score includes anorexia, nausea, vomiting, migration of pain, fever, tenderness over the right iliac fossa, pain with cough, percussion, or jumping up and down, leukocytosis over 10,000, and PMNs over 7,500. If your score is less than or equal to 2, the risk of appy is low, less than 2.4%, and the kid can likely go home with close follow-up. 
If it's greater than seven, the specificity is about 96%, and the kid should just go on to surgical management without imaging. If the score is between three and six, we're gonna move on to diagnostic imaging, typically with either ultrasound or CAT scan. Ultrasound has become a really common indication, and lots of EM providers are getting more skilled at this. The most accurate sign for Appy is finding a tube-like structure that is greater than six millimeters in diameter. The next best finding is a non-compressible appendix. If you see a wall thickness greater than or equal to three millimeters, hyperemia, an appendicolate, or a target appearance of the appy, the ultrasound is highly suggestive of appendicitis. Once more, tube-like structure that's either greater than six millimeters in diameter or non-compressible, mobilize your surgeons if you haven't already because the patient's got appendicitis. What are the studies equivocal? No hard findings of appendicitis on your ultrasound. There was a study in academic EM looking at exactly this question. If they had an equivocal ultrasound, they then applied clinical judgment. About 50% of the studies were equivocal, and the clinicians felt that about 60% of the patients looked good and sent them home. 30% were sent to observation for reassessment, and 11% went directly to the operating room. In the group sent home, only 1 or 0.3% bounced back with appendicitis. If you don't feel comfortable with this, you can always call your surgeon down to weigh in or pursue a CT scan. As far as management, the literature looking at antibiotics-only management in pediatrics is pretty scant at this point. I think all patients deserve surgical evaluation and probably are going to need surgery done until better information is available. Bottom line, start with your physical exam. For risk stratification, you can add labs if you're concerned and use the peds appy score to help with that risk stratification. If they've got more than two points on the score, move on to ultrasound if you have it or CT scan and mobilize your surgeons. Finally, we had a journal update on the New England Journal of Medicine article on central line placement. This study's got a lot of attention in foam, and instead of reviewing it here, we're going to drop a link to a Rebel Cast review from this month for an in-depth look. The study has a number of strengths and weaknesses, and I don't think it definitively tells us which line is best, but it gives us a lot of information to think about. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. This week, we'll have a post up on Wednesday on Alti Management that we featured on podcast number 16, and we're going to have a journal update Thursday discussing the Revert trial, which we discussed last week on the podcast. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Also, I want to give a shout out to the Feminem blog that was launched a couple months back by one of our faculty members, Dara Cass, and my co-host, Jenny Beck-Esme. Check out their site at feminem, F-E-M-I-N-E-M.org. Thanks, and see you all next week.